Today I want to start by reading some scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So if you'll grab a Bible and, and turn there with me, I'm going to read that now with you. In verse 12 starting, it says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in, an, in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin <clears throat> to be sin for, for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a lot in that scripture that we can go over, but... I'm going to narrow it down today to verses 16 through 21, and I want to talk about reconciliation. And reconciliation can mean many things, but today we're going to look at the, and we're going to focus on the definition to fix broken relationships. And I'm going to start by telling you a story about a young woman that grew up in an abusive and alcoholic home. She developed a lot of resentment and hatred and bitterness towards her parents. But as a young woman, discovered that she developed terminal cancer, and she didn't have too long to live, a matter of years. And she decided for the rest of her time here on this earth, she was going to make an effort to show her parents love, in spite of all the harm and damage they did to her. So over a period of time, her mother actually eventually moved into her home, and for three months, she would tell her mother every day before work that she loved her. But her mother never said anything in return, or never responded at all. One day she woke up, she wasn't feeling well, she was sick, but she still needed to go to work. She was in a rush and she's running late, so she goes out to her, get, runs out the door, get, get in her car, and before she made it to her car, her mother comes to the door and says, hey, you forgot something. She turns around and said, what, what did I forget? She said, you forgot to say I love you. And realizing in that moment what had just happened, she runs back to the porch and they embrace and cried. And that was the moment of reconciliation as mother and daughter for them. See, in 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21, God tells us that is what he did for us. Our relationship with God was broken, so he fixed it. He reconciled us to himself. And what I find most compelling about this scripture is that when he says now that, that he has reconciled us to him, you see, there's an expectation. He calls us to be reconcilers with others. And in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll read again, 18 through 19. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. See how much more that sticks out now? 
Now, for us Christians, this means a couple of different things. First, it means we are to be reconcilers in the church. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Some people might read that and think that Jesus meant that you're to sit back quietly, not say anything, keep your arms folded. But is that what the term peacemaker means? No, a peacemaker is someone that makes peace, or another way of saying it, if you make peace, you are a peacemaker. And we have a case study of this in the book of Philippians in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. There were two women in the church that weren't getting along very well. Their names were Eudia and Synthesia. And Paul, being proactive and not reactive, steps in and, and implores them to be of the same mind and to reconcile. See, but he realizes they weren't going to be able to do it on their own, so he enlists someone to help. Because he didn't want their conflict to create separation in the church. You see, when there is a conflict in the church, it is inappropriate for us to sit back and say, you know what, it ain't my problem. Because it is your problem. God has called you to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So if you want to honor God, if you want to reflect his glory in this world, you can step up, Step in and help fix what is broken because God calls you to be a fixer and a reconciler. Now, how do you do that? How do you become a fixer and a reconciler? Well, you stop being an enabler. And there are some common examples of how you are an enabler. And one is that you could possibly listen and encourage as others spread their dirty laundry. You might nod your head sympathetically and say soothing words to them. Another form of being an enabler is you would say, it's okay to feel that angry. I would feel that angry too if they did that to me. And we see this often that an enabler will take a side of an individual and then go off and gossip and spread venom about the other person to others. You see, an enabler is not a peacemaker. An enabler is an encourager of bitterness and conflict. So how do you become a peacemaker and not an enabler? Well, one example is you stop being a listening post and sympathizing with people's anger. You see, there's been research that said if you listen to complaining and gossip long enough, you tend to start to believe it, thus making you angry with someone that hasn't even done you any harm. Another way you can become a peacemaker and not, a, and not an enabler is you explain to the person that what they're doing is wrong. It's called complaining. God condemns it. And Paul spoke of the sins of the Israelites in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 and 10, when, when he actually said, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. God does not like a complainer. The third way you can be a peacemaker and not an enabler, and probably the most productive, is you try to build a bridge between the person and the person they are angry at. You try to emphasize the good in the person that they're mad at, or you try to downplay or minimize, for lack of a better word, the bad that they are guilty of. You see, God also calls us to be reconcilers in our own lives and fix relationships with people that we might have a conflict with. And this might actually be coworkers, friends, family, 
strangers? And Jesus said a couple of things about this in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God doesn't want your gift until you have fixed the relationship with the person you have offended. And in Matthew 18, verses 15, Jesus also said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So, if you have sinned against someone, what are you supposed to do? You go. And if someone has sinned against you, what are you supposed to do? You go. You see, the objective in both cases is reconciliation and gaining your brother. That doesn't mean you're going to get it done every time. What that means is that you have to try. How do you do that? How do you do that? It's hard. It's not something. It doesn't come easy to us. But Jesus tells, tells you in Matthew 7, verses 3 and 5, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, what does this mean? This means when we have a conflict with another person, we tend to see the problem as 90% theirs and 10% ours. We're good people. We wouldn't do anything wrong, right? Well, you have to understand, they see the problem as 90% yours and 10% theirs. They see you walking up to them with this huge log sticking out of your eye, expecting to fix their itty-bitty problem. Right? And you want them to fix their problem first, and they want, they think the problem is mostly yours, and they want you to fix yours first. But what does Jesus say to do here? Jesus tells you, you fix your problem first. But it's all their fault, right? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. That's not the point. You remove the log out of your eye first. That's what Jesus tells you to do. How are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to remove the log out of your eye? Well, you ask for forgiveness. And you don't just say, I'm sorry. See, that's the wrong way of doing it. There's a right way. If I walk up to Dusty and I go up to Dusty and I say, Dusty, I'm sorry. There's no sincerity behind that. I haven't called on Dusty to respond. But if I walk up to Dusty and I say, Dusty, I'm so sorry that I always use you as an example when I speak. (laughs) Can you please forgive me? See, what have I done there? I've instilled a level of sincerity, and I've also called for Dusty to respond, right? Right. But how do you ask for forgiveness from someone if it is all their fault? That's the question, because that's what we're all thinking. It is all their fault. How do I ask them? How dare I ask them for forgiveness? You be honest. You say, I have offended you. Can you please forgive me? Notice you are not saying they are wrong, and you're not saying who's more wrong. You are simply acknowledging the fact that they are offended by you, and you are removing the log out of your eye. Now, what if they don't in return ask you for forgiveness? It's not your problem anymore. That's their problem and their problem with God, and you shouldn't expect anything different. At work, we, it's real difficult for us to, 
to plan how many servers we need, so many fluctuations in guest counts, private events, et cetera. So as a management team, we, we really try hard to get it as close as possible, but it's, it's safer to have more than less, right? So <clears throat> we schedule what we, what we feel that we need. And, and when we come in each and every day as managers, we print a list of all the servers that are scheduled to work that day. And then we look at, we evaluate the needs on the, for the restaurant. And if there are any extra servers that we don't need, we'll put a list of numbers next to the names. And the servers know when they come in, if, there are, if there's a list of numbers there, they call it the list, that if they decide they do not want to work that day, they can put their name next to a number. And if everyone shows up, everything goes well, then those individuals will be able to go home. Now, there are two, th two reasons why you are not permitted to get on the list. One is, that as the management team, we review the strengths and talents of the staff that we have scheduled, and we determine there are certain individuals that need to stay for the benefit of the restaurant. We'll say not permitted for the list next to their name. The other is if we have certain guests that are coming in that have specifically asked for a server to take care of them. We'll put not permitted to be on the list. Well, a couple of weeks ago, had a server come in that was not permitted to be on the list, but he put his name on the list anyway. And when my manager approached him about it and said, hey, I'm so sorry you can't go home today because there's so-and-so's coming in and they asked for you to take care of them. And this server in return became very argumentative and disrespectful and insubordinate. And the moment that he said, it's just so-and-so, they're not that important. I heard that and I got up out of my chair and I ran out the office and from across the restaurant, I, I yelled at him, hey, they are important. You knew you had to work today. You're not going anywhere. And I turned around and went right back in the office. Have you been there? Man, I walked back in the office and it was a Charlie Brown walk behind the scenes. It's like, oh, brother. Right? I knew immediately I was wrong. And I knew immediately I needed to apologize. But apologizing right then, oh, that's not going to work. Right? So the next day I come in. And that's my first objective is when, when the servers get there, I'm going straight to him and I'm, I'm telling him how horrible I feel for the way I spoke to him. And I see him from across the room and I'm, I'm looking at him and I can tell by his body language he is just angry and disgruntled. And here I am walking up to him with this huge log sticking out of my eye and I come up to him and I say, hey, I am so sorry for the way I spoke to you yesterday. I instantly knew I was wrong. I let my emotions get the better of me. Will you please forgive me? His whole demeanor in that moment completely changed, completely turned around. And I took the log out of my eye. <clears throat> but there's one, aspect, there's one more aspect about reconciling with people who you have a conflict with. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 31, just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. And there are some people throughout history that have said things that are very similar to this. Confucius once said, do not unto others what you would not wish done to yourself. And Buddhists say, putting oneself in the place of others, kill not nor cause to kill. And how about the one from the Hindu culture? Hinduism says, do not unto others which could cause you pain if done to you. See, some people like to point out that all of these folks essentially said the same thing that Jesus said. But did they? No. They said, do not. Jesus said, do. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. See, that's one big difference between paganism and Christ. Paganism is satisfied if you just do not do anything harmful. 
let's say, harmful or um, terrible in your life. But Christ is only satisfied if you do more than you had to. See, it's just not enough to not do anything to fix a relationship. You have to do things for people if you want to reconcile. There's a story about a, a famous third baseman for the Boston Red Sox. His name was Wade Boggs years ago. And Wade Boggs loved playing baseball, but he hated playing at Yankee Stadium. And it wasn't because of the Yankees. It was because there was a season ticket holder that sat on the third base line. And every game, he would yell profanities and insults at Wade. He would torment him. You know, one day, Wade decided he was going to have enough. He had enough, and he was going to approach the man. So he did. He said, hey, fella, are you the man that yells at me every game that I'm here? And the man said, yes, I am. What are you going to do about it? So you know what Wade did? He reached in his pocket, took out a brand new baseball. He autographed it. Here you go. Turned around and went back onto the field for his pregame warm-ups. Guess what happened? That man never yelled at Wade Boggs ever again. And historically, in fact, he became one of Wade's biggest fans. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Now, are you supposed to reconcile people that are arguing or reconcile yourself to others because you're just wanting to be a nice person? No. You do what you do because God first did it for us. First, 2 Corinthians 5.18, once again, all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God did not wait for us to come to him. God stepped down out of heaven and came to us to fix what was broken. He died on the cross for us, or in our place. That's a better way of putting it. Now, unlike us, Jesus was without sin. Jesus didn't have a big log sticking out of his eye, but we did. But he did unto us what we would want God to do unto us. He forgave our sins, and he told us he loved us. And God, through Christ, reconciled himself to us. Does it all make sense now? See, brothers and sisters, that is our example for reconciliation. Right there. Now, I must point out that you can, reconciliation and forgiveness are not one and the same. And in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, Jesus commands us all to forgive 70 times 7, right? But it's important to know that you can have forgiveness without reconciliation. However, you cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. And in fact, in order to reconcile a broken relationship, both people have to repent and forgive. Now, in close today, I want to tell you another story about a woman that lived in a very small town. Everyone in town thought she was crazy. You know, she spoke to herself out loud. She even claimed, proclaimed that she could speak to Jesus and that he would speak back to her. There was a new preacher that came to town and heard about this woman and said, you know what, I'm going to help her face reality. So he saw her on the street one day and approached her and said, hey, are you the lady that can speak to Jesus? And she said, she said, yes, Jesus and I often talk for hours and hours. He said, hey, do me a favor. Next time you talk to Jesus, will you ask Jesus what was the last sin I committed? She says, oh, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that. So the next day, 
He sees the woman while he's walking downtown. He sees the woman and he goes and he approaches her and he says, hey, did you by chance to talk to Jesus last night? She says, oh yeah, sure did. And he says, what did he say by chance? What did he say was the last sin I confessed to him was? And she says, you know what? He, really, he said he didn't remember. And you know what? She might have been crazy, but she's right. When we confess our sins to God, he remembers no more. And that is what reconciliation is all about. That is what God did for us. And that is what he asked us to do for others. He wants us to get to the point to where we help people forget what we have done to them, and we don't remember what they have done to us. That is what reconciliation is all about. That is our example. You know, ask yourself, are you struggling with a relationship that you can reconcile? Are you doing your part? Are you trying? How's your relationship with God? Does that need to be reconciled? Perhaps. But you know, Jesus is standing and he's waiting and he's wanting to hug you and he's wanting to tell you how much he loves you and he's wanting to forgive you. You just have to let the power of prayer help you and come forward as we stand and sing.